Hey everyone, um, do you have life insurance? If not, it's probably something you should be thinking about, because um, it's a really important topic and something people often overlook. But you know, one of the things I found when I went in to get life insurance is I started looking at all the stuff that was covered and how much I was getting charged for life insurance, and it made me start to wonder whether the amount I was paying for my life insurance was subsidising the unhealthy lifestyles of the average person around me. And now there's this really cool insurance broker in America called Health IQ that if you're one of our American listeners, I definitely reckon you should check out. So Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like listeners for that paleo show. That includes runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. With the majority of Health IQ customers saving between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, which is amazing. So if you're an American listener, see if you qualify and get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paleo. Or mention the promo code PALIO when you talk to a Health IQ agent. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Dr. Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by a very special guest who has a BS in biochemistry, a PhD in neuroscience. He's studied the neuroscience of obesity and eating behavior, and has spent a total of 12 years studying it and been cited over 1,800 times by his peers. He's a writer, international speaker, and science consultant, and has written this really cool book called The Hungry Brain that was released in February 2017, which we're going to talk about a lot today and was named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly. He lives in Seattle where he grows much of his own food, rides around on his bicycle, and apparently brews a mean hard cider, which we might have to talk about. Stefan Guillenay. Thanks. Good to be here. Mate, great to have you on board. Uh, the book sounds fascinating. I can't wait to hear about it. But before we sort of delve right into it, I'd love to know a little bit about your background. Uh, neuroscience is such a cool topic. You know, I'm, I'm a chiropractor, so I'm just imminently fascinated by the nervous system. I love studying neurology, but certainly haven't studied it to the d- degree that you have by the sound of it. So what drove you towards neuroscience as a topic that you wanted to discover more about? Yeah, so, you know, I believe that some things were just born with and an interest in neuroscience is something that I've had since the earliest ages that I can remember. And uh, when I was a kid, I was absolutely obsessed by science in general. I literally would read science textbooks for fun when I was a kid, (laughs) anything I could get my hands on, physics, biology, but especially biology. And uh, anyway, so I I did biochem in um, college with the idea that I would give myself a foundation for neuroscience, uh, which I did in my graduate work at the University of Washington. And at the time, I was studying a rare neurodegenerative disease. And uh, it was it was interesting, interesting training. I learned a lot about genetics and about neuroscience generally. Uh, but I kind of wanted to do something that had broader relevance, something that uh, impacted more people and had a larger impact in general. And I'd always been interested in nutrition and fitness. And uh, I decided at the end of my um, 
at the end of my graduate work that I was going to try to bring those two interests together, the neuroscience and the health and fitness. And the logical place where those two things interact is in eating behavior and obesity. And so for my postdoc, I studied uh, the brain regulation of body fatness by a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. Again, I was at the University of Washington and I was working with a researcher named Mike Schwartz. And uh, it didn't take me long to realize that we were studying the right organ because, and you know, this is one of these really basic, obvious things that a lot of people, including my former self, didn't realize um, or didn't really realize the full implications of, I guess would be a better way of putting that. Um, and that is that the brain generates all behavior, behavior, including eating behavior. The brain generates all of our feelings, all of our impulses. So hunger, craving, all of those things are all generated by the brain. Of course, they're influenced by signals coming from the body and from outside the body. But the brain is the thing that takes all those signals, integrates them, and generates the behavior. So it's an obvious frame of reference to take when you're trying to think about um, when you're trying to think about eating behavior and obesity. And so, um, at that point I kind of realized that no one had ever, well, let me take a step back here. Okay. So that's, that's kind of obvious. What I just said is kind of obvious. Uh, but just because the brain generates all behaviors doesn't necessarily make it a useful frame of reference for thinking about eating behavior and obesity. For it to be a useful frame of reference, we have to have enough information to really know how those systems work. And that wasn't the case until relatively recently. But now neuroscience is advancing at an astounding rate. I mean, neuroscience research is really exciting right now with the new techniques we have. Um, and we know a lot about how these behaviors are generated now. We know a lot about the brain circuits that generate them and the diff different influences. And um, it occurred to me that this information wasn't really making it to the public. So all this stuff that I felt was pretty profound that really explains kind of the way we work and why we are attracted to certain foods, why we're hungry sometimes and not other times. There's so much speculation about this in the public sphere, but I realized that we, on a lot of this stuff, we don't have to speculate anymore, yet that information was not really reaching the public yet. And so I wanted to take all of that and put it into a book, translate it into a way where a non-scientist or someone who scientist in this particular, these particular fields could understand it and bring some of these insights into the general public. And really the central question that animated me the central question that I try to answer in this book is why do we overeat even though we don't want to? Mm. And that, that to me is a really profound question. I mean, because, you know, here in the United States, and this is true, I, I know in Australia to a large extent as well, even though I don't know the, the figures as well. Uh, in the United States, the lifetime risk of obesity is more than 50%. So more than half of people at some point in life will become obese. And we know, and, and so, you know, we know that's strongly con connected to how people eat, the, the types of food and the quantities of food. So, and we know that people don't want that to happen, right? So why do we eat 
the quantity and the type of food that leads us to a state that we don't want to be in? Why do we engage in this behavior for our entire lives, basically, that we really, really do not want to engage in? So that's really the question I wanted to explain in the book is why does our behavior betray our best intentions to remain healthy and lean and to eat healthy food? And so really the book is an exploration of these intuitive, uh, non-conscious brain circuits that push us to eat food that we don't really want to eat by generating cravings, by uh, generating hunger and other impulses like that, that can drive us to eat unhealthy food in uh, quantities that cause us to gain fat. Yeah, and it's such a fascinating and such an important question. And I guess, you know, the other thing that you can sort of frame that question with is the idea that really it is only humans and I guess animals fed by humans that have this problem. Like like you don't see really any other animals in nature having this issue of uh, overeating or, or, you know, causing, you know, obesity um, in the, to the same degree that we see it in humans, do we? Yeah, I mean, that's basically true with, with one little technical asterisk, and that is that some animals will become obese like bears, but it's... Um, it's adaptive. In the wild, when an animal becomes obese, it's because there's a good reason for it to become obese, such as a hibernating bear. A hibernating bear needs to become obese to survive the winter. But animals, you know, humans who have obesity in the modern world, there's no benefit to that. Uh, that is a state that is not typical of humans living in a hunter-gatherer or uh, not living human cultural lifestyle that it's rare in those settings it's not a state that has any benefits for us so i think you don't what you don't find in the wild is obesity that does not serve a specific beneficial purpose yeah that's a great clarification actually that that's brilliant i love it um so Stephen, uh, you always started out with a real love for biology, um, and and I love this because this is kind of where I started out as well. I think this fascination with how things work when they work right, uh, I think, is such an important framework for us to have as as researchers and scientists and health professionals. Is to to rather than I guess what we sometimes do is you know spend our whole time studying pathology and how things go wrong and, and try and fix those um, you know isolated aspects of people's health. I think. Having an understanding of biology and how things work when they work right is such an important framework to be able to create, uh, I guess, more holistic answers to what are really, uh, you know, questions that require really holistic answers in when we start looking at the uh, the chronic disease issues that we're seeing in our modern society. Is that sort of, is that where you started? Was it a real love of biology and I guess almost a love of nature that started you on this path? Well, I definitely love biology and I love nature. Um, I think one of the things that one of the, one of the observations that really got me started, uh, got me started in thinking about, uh, humans through an ancestral or evolutionary lens was the observation that people living in non-industrialized societies have much lower rates of a lot of the things that 
we're trying a lot of the disorders that we're not trying to get today or that that we're trying not to get I should say <laughs> so things like obesity and heart attacks and type 2 diabetes uh, and then a lot of other ailments that are less common but are nevertheless serious like autoimmune diseases inflammatory bowel disease uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis um, gout acne many other things like that and I think what that perspective gives you, I mean, there's there's two ways in a country like the modern United States or Australia. You can either say, okay, you know, we have really high rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, you know, it's just all bad luck and we just have to deal with it and it sucks uh, and it's a real burden, but um, we have to, you know, figure out ways to manage it. Or you can say, this is not normal. This is not biologically normal for our species to have high rates of non-communicable disease like this. Now, that's not to say that we didn't have other problems. Our ancestors had problems. You know, they had infectious diseases, um, very high mortality rates in childhood. They had lots of accidents. Uh, they had um, sometimes predation um, they had violence. There was a lot of warfare that happened in our ancestors' worlds that actually had much higher mortality rates than homicide and warfare in the modern world. So it's not like they were leading these idyllic lives, but <laughs> they weren't suffering from these metabolic and cardiovascular diseases and obesity that are causing so much problem for us today. And so when we, when we see that, and we acknowledge that, and, and there's actually a, a lot of evidence on this, you know, this is actually really quite clear that this is the case, even though a lot of people aren't familiar with that evidence. Uh, once you see that that's the case, it starts taking you down the path of asking, well, what's causing this increase? What has changed since the time of our ancestors, since the way that our ancestors lived, the way that our ancestors ate? that is causing this wave of non-communicable disease that is having a huge impact on us, not just on our well-being, but on our wallets. You know, in the United States, healthcare expenditure is like 18% of gross domestic product, something like that. I mean, it's absurd. The United States is an outlier, but uh, for any industrialized nation, the expenses are huge. And part of that relates to our very high burden of non-communicable disease. Yeah, and you know, the, the stats in Australia, I can tell you, they're, they're not a whole lot different. You know, you talked about the obesity before. I think we have slightly lower levels of obesity, but we actually, I think, have higher levels of overweight people. So, it, you know, in terms of the overall overweight and obese figure, I think it's actually very similar. Um, now, what you talked about just before, you were saying, you know, there's only really sort of two ways of looking at this. I guess the third option people sometimes come up with as far as why we might be seeing more of these chronic diseases is they suggest that it's because we don't have those, um, you know, don't have as many people dying in childbirth, we don't have as much trauma, so people are living longer and perhaps that's that's the other reason people suggest that it might be that we're seeing more of these um chronic diseases and and i'm sure i know what you'll say but what does the research say about that i mean that's absolutely a reason i mean the cardiovascular disease obesity diabetes age is a huge risk factor for all of those things and we are on average living longer than our ancestors ever did 
So, I mean, it's a factor, but then again, I mean, you know, this, this is a, this type of objection is something that people will kind of reflexively throw out when you say that the rate of cardiovascular disease was, you know, is lower among non-industrialized people. They'll say, well, they just die too soon to get cardiovascular disease. Well, there's a way that researchers can address this question. And what they do is they look at age-adjusted data. So you can mathematically adjust for the effects of age, or you just compare people in the same age group. And when you do that, you still see this profound difference in disease rates. And, and obesity, too. I mean, you can just see it with your two eyes. If you go to certain parts of the world, you know, in the United States, the, the, the rate of childhood obesity is 17% here. I think it's a little higher now, but the last figure I saw was 17%. You go to certain parts of the non-industrialized world, and it's not a 17% obesity rate in childhood. You can't say that it's because they're not living long enough to become obese. Uh, but going back to the age-adjusted data, we have enormous autopsy studies that were published in the 1960s and 1970s. Most people have never heard of these studies. I'm talking about thousands of people in different parts of Africa, as well as different cities of the United States, in Japan, and Korea, where they actually did autopsies, cut open people's hearts, looked at their arteries, and diagnosed whether they died of a heart attack or not, and what their level of atherosclerosis is. And what they found is that when you compare people that are the same age group, so like 60, 70 years old, in certain African countries, uh, really like rural, non-industrialized areas in Africa, you find that you can't find a single person who ever had a heart attack in that age group. Wow. You look at their hearts and they, they didn't have heart attacks. Whereas you look at the hearts of people from New Orleans or Los Angeles or New York, and you find that 30% of them had silent heart attacks that they carried with them that were visible on autopsy. So, I mean, and you, you, can, you can see this through a number of different techniques. You can see it in living people using electrocardiograms. Uh, these studies have been done as well. There's huge amounts of data showing that given the same age, People in non-industrial culture, and, and by the way, I'm not claiming that this applies to every single non-industrial culture. I can't make that claim. But what I can say is that generally uh, the studies that have been done in non-industrialized cultures have overwhelmingly reported this result, that there's a much lower rate of heart attacks. When they look for diabetes, there's a much lower rate of diabetes. People have better glucose tolerance, which is a precursor of diabetes, much lower obesity. I mean, if you really take a serious look at the evidence, there's no, there's, in my mind, there's no disputing it that there's a huge difference and it cannot be explained by age, even though age, it cannot be fully explained by age is what I mean. Yeah. Even though age is a risk factor, it cannot be fully explained away by age. There's a huge effect that is age independent that has to do presumably with our lifestyle and diet, et cetera. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's the same across really all of the chronic diseases, isn't it? I mean, I know in a, the latest stat I saw was something like 40% of 15-year-olds have some kind of chronic disease, you know. So, it's th- th- those numbers of those chronic diseases is not just in the older population, you know, it's in those younger populations as well. It's just becoming more and more prevalent. So, uh, I think you're absolutely spot on there. And it's great to get some of the research around that and to hear about some of those studies because, you know, it really does show how much that research is just out there. Uh, but just not being necessarily shared yet or understood yet. And, and we all know it, it just takes time for that stuff to come through. So thank you for sharing that. Um, in terms of your love of nutrition and fitness, you know, did that kind of come around at the same time? Like, it, was, it, was it the fact that you started to understand what these traditional cultures were doing that led you towards being more interested in nutrition and fitness? Or were you already interested in nutrition and fitness before that time? I was already interested in nutrition and fitness. I uh, was an athlete in high school. I say I was an athlete. I was nothing special, but I did athletics. Um, (laughs) And I continued to be into athletics and fitness in college. and, And really, I have been ever since. I still continue to try to stay in good shape. And I've always been interested in nutrition, but my concept of what good nutrition is has changed a lot over the years. So I went through a couple of different phases. Um, at one point, I uh, I was vegan for about six months. Uh, I was vegetarian for about two years, including the vegan period. Um, and I then I went low carbohydrate uh, for about six months. Um, and then after that, I just kind of I guess I started to relax. Um, I started to, I started to believe that the human body is quite adaptable, and ancestral diets have been extremely variable. Yeah. And I think that if you're a generally healthy person, not trying to achieve any specific health goals, then I think there are a number of different ways that you can be healthy, a number of different foods that you can eat to achieve that. But uh, yeah, so I I kind of, the way I eat is kind of a broadly ancestral diet. So uh, it's kind of somewhere in between a paleo diet and what a non-industrial agriculturalist would eat. So um, I don't, so generally unrefined foods, that's really the main principle for me is unrefined lower calorie density foods i don't i don't eat a lot of processed foods um most of what i eat almost all of it is made from scratch in my own kitchen i actually grow a lot of the food that i eat um so it's a lot of tubers um not a lot of meat but some meat um eggs we have our own chickens i eat a lot of beans a lot of lentils a lot of fruit um, not a lot of bread. So it's, but it's pretty flexible. Like if I want to have a slice of pizza, I'm going to have a slice of pizza. (laughs) I'll have a beer. I, you know, I'll have candy every now and then. I, I just don't think it matters that much, at least in the context of my overall diet. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, I still care a lot about nutrition and fitness, but I, my view has shifted as I, as, as I have matured or I believe I've matured uh, in my views of nutrition, I've started to 
instead of caring about a lot of little details, I've started to focus on just a few really basic important principles that I think give us most of the value out of diet nutrition. And those are really simple things like eating an unrefined diet, not eating too much, getting regular physical activity, getting good sleep, managing stress, good social interactions, things like that. Did you know that physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and 58% lower risk of diabetes? Well, you probably did, because you're one of my smart listeners on that paleo show. But that's compared to people who are inactive. Don't you think it makes sense then that if you're physically active, you should pay less for your life insurance? Health IQ thinks so. Like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious life. So if you're in the United States, see if you qualify and get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paleo. Or mention the promo code paleo when you talk to a Health IQ agent. You know, because we get lots of guests on this show with from all different bents. You know, we've had probably a lot of people on recently doing kind of lower carb diets because that's been really popular, and and obviously keto and all that sort of stuff. But but my approach is probably very much uh, similar to yours. And one of the things I often say on the show is that you know I, I find for most people ninety five plus percent of the results come from just doing the simple things really well. You know, I think sometimes we can totally overcomplicate it. And, and like you said. Um, you know, I know I wrote in one of my articles about some different tribes around the world where, you know, you've obviously got everything from uh, the Inuit tribes who are eating such a high proportion of fat and blubber, you know, right through to some of the Papua New Guinean tribes, which were 80%, uh, you know, sweet potatoes and tubers, as you said. So, there is such variety there in terms of what those hunter-gatherer tribes were eating. And I think sometimes we can lose track of that. Um, but I guess... Yeah, some of those lower carb diets have become, and keto diets have become really popular in recent times. And certainly some of that seems to be driven by the results people are getting with certain neurological disorders. Um, so I'm curious to ask you, as uh, as a neuroscientist and someone who is expert in this field, you know, do you think there's a place for those taking those lower carb approaches for some of those, I guess, neurodegenerative disorders? Yeah, you know, the research really is still in its infancy right now. Um, I know that there has there's demonstrated efficacy for certain types of epilepsy in humans. I think that's pretty well established. Um, there's some animal evidence that diets like the ketogenic diet could be useful for neurodegenerative disease. There are some theoretical arguments. Basically... I mean, I, I think the research should be done. Let's try it. Let's let's figure out if it works. But at this point, you know, showing that something works in animals is not the same as showing it works in humans. And, you know, we've seen many examples of things not translating effectively from animals to humans. So, but I mean, at the same time, that's that's the first step. You do it in animals. If it works, then you say, okay, this is plausible. Let's test it in humans. You know, that's that's the first step that you have to take. And so it's good. They should be taking it and then try it in humans if it seems promising. Um, yeah. And, you know, people and, and, you know, another thing you have to be cautious about is anecdotes like people who get really spectacular results are going to be more likely to write about their experiences on the Internet and become, you know, evangelists for it. And. And that doesn't mean that it's not effective for them. It doesn't mean that it didn't benefit them. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily represent the results that everyone's going to get. Um, that said, I mean, you look at, if you look at carbohydrate restriction, uh, for body fat loss, that's probably the best characterized aspect of it in human randomized controlled trials. Um, you see that essentially the more a person restricts carbohydrate, the more fat that person is likely to lose. And you see it on the other side too. The more a person restricts dietary fat, the more body fat they're going to lose as well. So on either side of the spectrum, basically the more extreme you get, the more fat you lose. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, I think self-experimentation is, is really useful. And if someone has success with the ketogenic diet, then that's wonderful. Yeah, cool. So let's get on to talking a bit more specifically about your book because this um, this hungry brain idea I think is fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, why our brain is wired the way that it is wired? Um, you know, what was the evolutionary purpose of it being wired in that way and, and what's going wrong with it with our modern lifestyles and diets? Why is that not working for us anymore? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at the evolutionary context, the way that the human brain is put together actually really makes a lot of sense uh, and why it's messing up today makes a lot of sense too. Um, if you think about an animal in the wild, what biologists have shown in a variety of species, including human hunter gatherers, is that our foraging behavior, in other words, what foods we seek and how intensely we seek one food over another, depends in large part on that food's calorie return rate. So in other words, the number of calories it contains minus the number it takes to get it divided by time. Very simple economics equation. Same thing you might apply if you were thinking about different investments. Um, it's the calorie return rate. And that's a very, very um, important determinant of how animals decide what to seek, including humans. And, uh, you know, calories, the term calorie is kind of somewhat of an abstract concept. I mean, what that really refers to is chemical energy in molecular bonds contained in carbohydrate, fat, and protein, and to a lesser extent, alcohol as well. Uh, I, I mean, to a lesser extent, because our ancestors wouldn't have consumed a lot of that. Um, but so basically, if you, were, if you were trying to design an animal to survive in a natural environment, you would design that animal to be motivated by the chemicals that supply energy because energy as as i've explained is a huge uh selective pressure in natural selection and that's why animals are shaped to obtain it that's why our brains were designed to obtain energy effectively and so energy is represented by carbohydrate fat and protein and so we have receptors in our mouth in our digestive tract that are specifically detecting the concentration of those nutrients and reporting that to the brain. And that reporting, that signal, sets our motivational level to eat those foods. So basically, the more carbohydrate, the more fat, the more starch, or sorry, the more uh, protein is in a food, the more concentrated it is, the more dopamine release you get in your brain. Because those receptors in the gut 
they send that signal right to the brain. Dopamine spikes proportionally to the concentration of those nutrients, and that sets your motivation level to consume that food, both in the moment as you're eating it and in the future, because that's what dopamine does. It's a learning chemical. So it, it uh, basically tunes your future motivation level to be proportional to the value of the reward. And the value of the reward is proportional to the concentration of those nutrients. And so in a, in a wild situation, what you get is a human that is very, very motivated to seek things that are really concentrated in, uh, in carbohydrate, uh, fat, and protein. And so what, do you, what, what happens when you ask a hunter-gatherer what the most delicious foods are, what foods that person would, re- would most like to eat? Usually you get answers like honey and meat, especially fatty meat. So this is what the human brain is wired to be motivated by. This is hardwired. We have hardwired motivations to go for carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And the carbohydrate, of course, can be either sugar or starch. Um, Just on that, Stefan. And um, so, with, yeah. were, there any, were there any situations in, I guess, previous times where uh, hunter-gatherers lived in places of abundance where that caused a problem for them? Because, I mean, it, it seems to me that there might be some, I don't know, places in the tropics where fruit is abundant and, and food is, you know, abundant where that potentially could have caused problems for hunter-gatherer societies, you know, just like it does in modern times. Is there any evidence of that happening anywhere? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I have... I'm not aware of any hunter-gatherer culture anywhere where overweight or obesity was common. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. I mean, theoretically, you could see that maybe being being true. I know researchers have done experiments in wild animals where they artificially bump up their food supply, and I think they do start gaining a bit of weight. Um but, you know, I think one thing that's important to emphasize is that usually hunter-gatherers in a, in a natural hunter-gatherer environment, usually there's more calories than, than those people need to maintain weight. So they could eat more than they need, but it requires – to get more calories requires progressively more work because you're exploiting more difficult resources and – Sometimes those extra calories are in foods that you might not like very much. So they're not the preferred foods. Maybe they're kind of bitter or they taste gross or they're really hard to get or something like that. So I think you have basically, you know, even though hunter-gatherers had these really strong motivations to get honey, I think honey is a great example actually. All right. So honey tastes amazing, right? (laughs) It it tastes amazing to hunter-gatherers. It tastes amazing to us. It's basically pure sugar. Um, but if you're a hunter-gatherer, what do you have to do to get that honey? I mean, the the Hadza, there's great descriptions of how they do this. They hammer pegs into a tree so they can climb up the tree to get to a nest. Then they start a fire. They get a stick. They make the stick start to smolder. They put the stick in the nest to make the bees drowsy. And then they stuff their arm in it in, into the nest, get stung a bunch, and pull out the honey 
and then they just eat enormous quantities of it. Like <laughs> some As of the you anthropologists, would. After all that work, I eat lots, right? And they do. Yeah, they do. I mean, the Hadza, for example, their sugar intake, mostly from honey, but also from fruit, is about the same as Americans. But they work hard to get that. And if you, I mean, in theory, you could get enough honey to overeat it, to eat too much. But how many times do you have to get stung? How many trees do you have to climb to do that? You know, like you're not going to do it in order to overeat. Like it's just not motivating yeah. enough. And, you know, killing an antelope and eating its meat, you know, they love antelopes. That's a lot of work. I mean, they track these animals for days sometimes. Yeah. So and then... I guess moving into more modern yeah, so, times, then then maybe this is the answer. Yeah. You know, maybe we need more bees at our fast food outlets. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Every time you want to drink a soda, you have to get stung 10 times by a bee. Um, right. So I think, yeah, essentially, so you have this scenario where they have these motivational systems that drive them to get concentrated calories, but those calories are difficult to get. And most of the time, their food is unrefined. And you could debate that on honey, but for most things, it's unrefined foods. So the scenario is different in the modern world. It's very, very easy for us to get very concentrated calories. And yeah. specifically in the modern world, so these, these, spe these specific chemicals that trigger our dopamine release, we have identified those and we have concentrated them. So I said I said protein um, I said protein fat and and carbohydrate so for carbohydrate we have crystallized sugar that is absolutely pure reward we have uh, purified starch that's also pure reward you know we've taken all the fiber and water out of it mm. uh, for protein we have glutamate monosodium glutamate that is a very, very tasty thing that has been purified to a crystalline form. Salt is another one I didn't mention before, but that is another reward factor that spikes dopamine. We have crystalline salt. So basically, we've done to food what we did to cocaine. You know, cocaine in its natural state is in the coca leaf. It's just you chew the coca leaf like they do in South America, and it's like it's like having a cup of coffee. But once you purify that to a pure active ingredient of cocaine, all of a sudden it's a highly addictive drug because it's much better at stimulating dopamine. So our modern foods are much better at stimulating dopamine, and they're really, really easy to get. And so that's just kind of like a perfect storm for eating too much. And there are other reasons too, but I think those are two really key reasons why we eat too much. Uh, Stefan, this is great. I, I think that makes so much sense. Um, I think this book is going to be great for all of our listeners to get hold of. Um, it's called The Hungry Brain. Um, it's available on Amazon and now on Amazon.com.au for those here in Australia, which is a bit exciting. Um, and obviously, people can find out more information about you as well. Um, so, they can go to your website, which is StefanGuyane.com and that's S-T-E-P-H-A-N. G-U-Y-E-N-E-T dot com. They can find out all about you there. And Twitter, you've said, is the best spot to find you on the social media. So, it's at WH Source on Twitter as well. So, Stefan, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute wealth of information. It's great to hear someone who's so uh, in tune with the research and what's going on and, and gives such an honest appraisal of it. So, 
thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you, Brett. Um, and for everyone else, until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. Health IQ are not just an insurer. They're a life insurance agency. They take the customer through the journey from when they submit their interest to starting an application, going through the underwriting and to enforcing the policy as well. The policy is underwritten by one of their top partners who is an insurer. So if you're in the US, see if you qualify and get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paleo or mention the code paleo when you talk to your Health IQ agent. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.